Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes. This is a podcast about plant molecular biology and other random science crap. Yeah, um, my name is Joram. Hi. Hi, I'm Tegan. And all of the opinions expressed on the show are my own. All of them. Even my opinions <laughs> are your own opinions. Yes. Also, uh, <laughs> Yoram, I tell him what to say. I give him a script because, I mean, as it turns out, he's a massive bigot. And actually, it's, it's just better this way, guys. Like, really, I'm doing you all a favor. No, somebody at work came up to me and um, was like, hey, I, um, I heard about this thing that you did on the weekend. And I was like, wait, what? What? <laughs> like, how do you? Oh, okay. I guess that's, yeah. yeah. That's not a terrible sign, but. That's the, the life in the public eye. Now you know exactly oh, yes. how Megan feels. <laughs> Which Megan? Fox? No, the, no one, the... the prince married Megan. What's her last name now? Marco. Is she like No, but it no, was but Marco. is she like Megan Royal Windsor? Windsor, are they Windsor? I think I should know this. This is my queen. Yeah, it's not my queen. Uh I'm yeah. a, I'm proud citizen of a republic. That means we don't have any monarchy here. Yeah. Like at did least you kill your monarchy? What happened? Oh, after what? When, when no, did your monarchy? The monarchy after the First World War. No, even did you have some Prussian people? That, I mean, we had. Yeah, there was Prussia. Oh no, my German history. <laughs> I I know. Guys, that we welcome had, like, to a terrible grip on world and German history by Tegan and Joram. I think the Weimarer Republic, so re republic without, so no monarchy, yeah, existed Weimar before Republic. the. Existed before the First World War. I don't know when it was yeah. founded. Um, I think we still were a monarchy um, in 1870 when we were at war with the French. I think this was like the none Prussians. Of, I guess none of our listeners care, and the ones who do are like angry, like they're caring, they're throwing. I mean, if you're, <laughs> feel free to like throw your headphones down in rage and complain that the education of these millennials is ridiculous. And, no, and no, I, I'm wrong. It's after the First World War that the uh, Republic <laughs> was founded. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did, did I say that? Is that what I said? Is, yeah. that, is that a thing that I said? Yeah. 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 I never know any history. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking so of history, um, today is, yeah. uh, is February. Um, that means yes. it's Black History Month, which means it's a good time to check up on um, I mean, it's mostly important in the US, so that doesn't really exist here in Europe, but um, it's a great chance to look at all the cool um, posts that are out there about like African-American or non-white researchers in general, um, mm -hmm. because there were quite a few. I wanted to mention that, but there's also today, it's actually Darwin Day. Um, so many things happening, Darwin Day. Darwin Day, and I found a cool article that we'll link in the show notes. Um, that's called, uh, it's called Charles, Dar Charles Darwin, the botanist, um, because I think many people think of Darwin as this guy who like, figured out that we come from the apes and he worked with finches and had a, a ship named like a dog. Um, but he was also a very keen um, botanist. Good summary. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he studied orchids, he studied... Um, um, photomorphogenesis and the movement of plants and so on um, so it's actually an interesting read and um, they go through like three passions of his uh, related to plants um, uh, so yeah so we'll link that and yesterday was women in stem day that i because yesterday i was so busy i didn't really look at twitter and then only today i actually wrote some stuff about this um, and i asked on twitter for um, the which women inspired people and i got some very nice uh, replies um and one i want to read is from roland groms or roland 
Gromes or actually, I, I, I'm going to say Roland Gromes. Um, and he's, he tweeted, uh, he replied, my mother, who was a biology and chemistry teacher and my father's mother, who was also, uh, who also was a teacher and told me to identify trees as a little boy. I still have a little booklet with pressed leaves where eight year old me tries to describe what photosynthesis is, which is something oh, I really wow. liked. And I found it very inspiring to have like this, this knowledge given by his mother and grandmother, like passing this on. Um, and yeah, that's lovely. Giving this very early, like, um, like what's what's the word? Like being very early exposure. Um, yeah, exposed to to plant science and getting this passion for plant science. And now he's a teaching coordinator in Heidelberg, um, and a biologist of passion. So it stuck with him definitely. So yeah, wow, I quite like yeah, that I reply, mean, and I like the others as well. But uh, this one stand stood out to me. There's, there's a quote which I think is always attributed to David Attenborough, but I'm not sure if that's true, um, about the idea that we are born as scientists, we're born curious, and then we get it beaten out of us as we, we go on. And I think that's kind of something where, I mean, kids go through this age where they're just sponges, they just take everything up. So, yep. hey, if you have children, if you've made or stolen those children, as we talked about last week, um, <laughs> be sure to ram some plant science into their tiny little brains while you still can. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm going to take uh, his word that uh, I think it should be the mother who does this so I can lean back and not do anything <laughs> and just tell my wife that she has to do all of the inspiration for plant science. <laughs> no, um, I think he'll have to, although like I, I think I said this before, but our catchphrase whenever he like approaches a potted plant, I'm like, we say no to plants. <laughs> no! What? what? Why? Uh, <laughs> So every time he he like crawls and he like tries to eat the, the dirt and I'm like no uh, we say no to plants. <laughs> yeah, in fairness, you don't. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll try to keep this up. I I quite like that I'm a plant science communicator and my I teach my son we say no to plants. It's my little my ironic sense there is tingling. Um, yeah, so that was my my stuff that I wanted to say at the beginning. Do you have something else that you wanted to mention here, uh, apart from that all of your views are your own? Did something cool happen to you recently? What? All my views are my own? What was... Oh, okay. I thought you think like all of my Twitter views, I was getting distracted by, <laughs> by modern technology. Um, <laughs> yes, I expressed my own personal views. Um, no. What happened... It, I went to another um, musical. I went swimming. I, it's all boring stuff. Let's roll it. Let's roll the next theme song. Nobody wants to hear my life. It's the paper of the week. This week's paper is something from Nature, and it's called "Isolation of an Archaeon at the Prokaryote-Eukaryote Interface." And Yaram chose this paper. Why did you choose the paper, Yaram? Um, I chose the paper because somebody chose it for me. Um, a good friend of Ooh. us, Hetian, <laughs> he, he uh, talked uh, told me about this paper, and it just sounded really cool. Like the backstory of the paper is really cool. We'll got, uh, get into this in a in a minute. Um, but the main question of this paper is: How did eukaryotes come to be? Um, we like we often talked in for our plant science stuff uh we talked about um the engulfment of the chloroplast right we always say yeah the, the chloroplast comes from an endosymbiotic event when a eukaryotic yeah. cell engulfed a, a photosynthetic acti act photosynthetically active cell and then they lived together and that's how uh, essentially like algae and plant cells came to be um, but we have to go one step even further back before that eukaryotic thing existed yeah. that could engulf the plastidy thing. Yeah, um, because b 
before that there was already one engulfed organelle the mitochondrium and um, to this day we don't really know how that came to be there are a couple of theories and this is what this paper tries to explore um, so prokaryotes you usually think of things which are very simple which don't have like these extra structures like organelles um, they have DNA but the DNA is not held even within a nucleus it's kind of just in this like bit chaotic mess um, so really yeah basic basic life forms and then eukaryotic is then with these kind of more structured um, forms and anything yep. you're interacting with the world in the world that you can see is going to be a eukaryote um, basically and then prokaryotes yep. are more like bacterial little things like yeah Exactly. Yeah, to simplify it, <laughs> hell of a lot. And the study is from uh, Hiroyuki Imachi uh, from the lab, I think from Hideyuki Tamaki and Ken Takai. Um, you can tell probably by the names already that um, the researchers are based in Japan. In Yokosuka, uh, at least the first author, um, there's quite a lot of authors on this paper. And in a minute, we're going to know why it was published in January <laughs> this year. Um, yeah, in Nature, as you said. And I think the first thing to to get into this is uh, that we have to talk a little bit about RK. Is that the right pronunciation? I think so, yeah. RK. RK, yeah. RK for the, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. RK. So these are, um, it's a, another branch of the tree of life, uh, which often gets uh, overlooked, at least in my, in my uh, experience. Yeah. When I went to school, we kind of didn't, we just ignored that. We were like, okay, there's like yeah. bacteria and then there's like, That's it. Yeah. That was the small things. Yeah, there's bacteria, there's eukarya, so eukaryotes. Um, and then they say, yeah, there's another branch, but we don't talk about this. This is the archaea. <laughs> um, and, uh, the interesting thing about these archaea is, first of all, from a name, it already sounds sort of ancient. And it's because there are these like ancient microorganisms um, that often live in these sort of extremophile conditions. You find them in like deep sea sediments and stuff like that. They often um, don't like oxygen too much, so they stay away. They have like alternative routes of, of metabolic pathways and so on. Um, and they share some traits with eukaryotes and with bacteria. Um, so on the mm -hmm. Wikipedia page, there's like a table um, where like they have a similar genome structure as bacteria, but they have a similar uh, membrane structure as eukaryotes. So they sort of sit in between. And so now there's this, this question like on an evolutionary timescale, when did they split off from where? Yeah, I guess the thing is like when you look at them, I mean, you have first you have to use a microscope to look at them, but they look like bacteria. So like the first, the first glance is like, oh, that looks like a bacteria. And that was kind of the... The reason why for a long time people were like, okay, this is like small things. It's all the same as bacteria, but yeah. it's an entirely separate kingdom. So they are like as different from bacteria as they are, as bacteria are from eukaryotes and, and so on. There's like these quite strong divisions there. They're not similar um, in a kind of evolutionary sense, right? That's part of the reason why... Um discussing about where it sits on this tree of life and on an evolutionary scale when they diverge from each other uh, there's a little bit of a dispute there so there's the first one uh, idea is the three domains tree where you have like three domains the bacteria the archaea and the eukaryotes and they all diverged rather early not exactly at the same time but quite early so the eukaryotes split off very early and then the archaea they um, themselves di diversified within their uh, their branch and the eukaryotes they sort of split early and then did their own thing and then there's the other idea the eocyte tree where um, you have the bacteria and the archaea they branch off and then the eukaryotes they branch off from the archaea so they sort of come a little bit later now today um, or before the study that we're going to talk about 
we couldn't really tell which one of these two it was. There was like evidence or or hints towards both of these um, designs of the tree. I'm I'm feeling restless because I really want to talk about the Asgard yeah. phylum now. Yeah, so yeah, I think we should like this is the coolest thing. So um, there's Asgard Archaeota or the Asgard Superphylum, which is this group of uncultivated archaea. And it has its own Wikipedia page, so you should definitely go and check that out. But it begins with a discovery in the summer of 2010. Um, and basically, they found, as Yoram said, in this kind of deep, um, disgusting sludges at the bottom of the ocean near a hydrothermal vent. Um, they found some kind of sediments which happened to have certain archaea lineages which had not been discovered before. And the name of the vent was Loki's Castle. So this is actually the name of the hydrothermic vent, and that's where the first name came. But on top of the fact that it was coming from Loki's Castle, this first developed um, Asgard um, Arche. They also said, hey, like, Loki has all these connotations where Loki is, like, complex and confusing and ambivalent, and it's Loki is, like causing chaos and he makes mysteries and the identity of this Asgard as this weird thing that kind of is eukaryotic looking but kind of looks also prokaryotic was also causing confusion in the scientific field so this is perfect we're gonna give this RK the Loki term yeah and then as you know when scientists get on a thing they stay on the thing <laughs> and they stay on it hard um yeah. so, um <laughs> like years later people started discovering more and more of these and now we have um uh, Heimdallar Archaeoda. So Heimdallar is another one of the Norse gods. We have one named after Odin. We have one named after Thor. And am I forgetting something? I think that's the main four um, kind of super phylums that we have. Yeah, yeah Loki, Loki uh, Heimdall, Thor, Odin, and I think even Hela. There's an H-E-L, uh, at least on the graphic here. Yeah. yeah. So they've They've gone crazy with this, guys, um, which is <laughs> quite delightful. And I always encourage funny names in. Yeah. <laughs> this is really great. Yeah. But maybe back to the paper, huh? Um, yeah, because I, I, the the Loki one that they first discovered uh, will become very, um, important later on. So the, um, the thing about these Asgard type RK, they couldn't be cultured so far. They, so they could take samples and analyze them, but they couldn't grow them in the lab. And that's where this group uh, started their work. And they started it 12 years ago um, mm -hmm. with a bioreactor where they took a sample from two two and a half thousand meters uh, under the sea of this like sediment, of this sludge. They took a sample um, and incubated it in a methane-fed continuous flow bioreactor. For more than 2,000 days. And then for 2,000 days, over 2,000 days, so that's five and a half years, they continuously ran this and didn't see anything happening um, until they finally did. They finally had some growth happening in there. And this is what Yara might have been hinting about, the, the number of um, authors on this paper. Yeah. This is a long-term experiment. Yeah. And after these five and a half years, they started taking samples and uh, the first samples they just looked at, they had a couple of organisms that grew there, including Asgard RK members mm -hmm. that were in, in, the, in the sample. Um, and so they started to grow them. And usually what we do when we grow something in a big bioreactor, in a fermenter, essentially, uh, we take a sample and we let them grow in like smaller tubes to continue to grow them, trying to isolate the, the specific um, things that we have there. And um, they did that as well. And... <laughs> Can I read the, the, the phrase, yeah. the, the sentence? After approximately one year, 
we found faint cell turbidity yeah. in a culture. So that's like a little bit of growth. So that when you shake the tube, you see that it's a little bit turbid, that there's like, something mm. in there, but just like a hint um, uh-huh. after one year. And um, they check different media and then they like resample and like continue to grow them um, to, to enrich them. Um, and so what I found living together was like a type of bacterium, the halodesulfovibrio type of bacterium. Um, so another uh-huh. extremophile and a small population of Loki archaeota. So um, these Loki type archae. And really at this stage, like most of them are the other bacteria. Like yeah. there's a very small amount. I think it's like 5% or something at this stage. Um, uh, yeah, it was like something uh, very 14%. small. 14%. That's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. But still um, mostly other things. And then they try to enrich that, right? So to look at that. Yeah. Archive. Then they're they're optimizing and they're they're finding the, the conditions. So as it turns out, this guy happens to like being fed some amino acids in its substrate and also some powdered milk. But even like in the best conditions, it's very slow to grow. So yeah. the culture consistently had a 30 to 60 day lag phase. So you put something in culture and then you wait 30 to 60 while it just kind of settles in. So it's just like not doing it. It's just kind of like, it's not dying, but it's also not going to grow and divide. It's yeah. just kind of like hanging for two months. And then the doubling time is every two to almost four weeks. So... Yeah. Again, we use E. coli normally. Um, we take a tiny little, like, kind of, uh, I don't know, a scraping, like the, the tip of a pen. You just put drop it into a um, five mils of liquid and you've got, like, completely filled with E. coli by the next day. Yeah. And if it doesn't grow that fast, we get angry. We're like, yeah. oh, my, my E. coli is growing so slow. It took, like, one and a half days to grow. I'm just, what am I even doing with myself? <laughs> I can't. Two months I of lag. <laughs> I just cannot with E. coli anymore. I need it, need something faster. Two months to grow and then like three weeks to double. So like you have one of them and then three weeks later, well done, you have two. Like, <laughs> and these are small. These are not like penguins. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you need, you need some more of them. Um, but then <laughs> You finally, need more than two. And they also said they tested all these different conditions, but they couldn't really yeah. improve it. Like it... It just can't go faster. Like they, they tr- supplemented it with like different nutrients or they tried minimal media. They tried different conditions, um, temperatures and stuff, and they just couldn't get it to grow faster than this like uh, very long doubling time, three months for full growth and so on. I actually was um, listening to a conversation um, the other day sort of some people and one of them was talking about their partner who was getting really into um, – fermenting so you like making kombucha making kimchi making um there's a special fermentation of rice that uses a very um specific type of bacteria or fungus that the japanese use to make um you know so all these different fermentation techniques and they're talking about how like their house is now just filled with (laughs) jars filled with disgusting slides so if you've ever made kombucha you'll know that it's like this slimy biofilm mat thing of like a community that exists in these kind of yeah I mean, it looks gross. Um, and this is kind of how gross. I was imagining. Kombucha is fine. No. You, you, it's, it's okay. You're an adult. Drink the kombucha. <laughs> um, no. Yeah. And I'm just imagining this group is just having these weird containers everywhere. And somebody's like opening this container like, what the hell is that? They're like, no, don't let the oxygen in. <laughs> like, that's that's our like lucky back to like lucky okay um and just like the lab is filled with weird shit hanging everywhere that's yeah. kind of like faintly smelling like methane and yeah hardly doing 10 anything. years late yeah and then like 10 years later somebody's like oh yeah <laughs> yeah not bad like we've got something we've got faint turbidity in our cell culture so when they analyzed everything it took them seven years of doing these cultures 
12 years in total. 12 so years 12 years for the pre-enrichment and then seven years of the weird hanging shit around. No, no yeah, f five and a half for the pre-enrichment in the bioreactor mm -hmm. and then plus seven years for the... Uh, okay, so 12 in total, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and after six of these transfers, they already found um, or they analyzed uh, their, their samples and they had this type of RK that they wanted to study there. They gave it now a very handy name. It's MKD1. We're going to call it Locky, I think. Yeah, we just let's we just kind of call it Locky, even if that's not too precise. But so they found Locky in the again the halo de sulfi uh, de sulfo vibrio bacterium and another arche a metanogenium archaeon um, so these three guys hanging together and then they did um, uh, confocal microscopy and they saw that they really they touched each other they were not just in the same culture yeah. but they actively hung hung out together um, which already hinted to to the idea that these guys do something together they they can't really live alone um, but then they enriched and even yeah yeah even later when they did the the more the purified the ultimate ultimate pure they had like a tiny little bit of random stuff and then about 12 percent of these methanogeniums and then about like almost 90 percent of the the lockies yeah. in the end so that was quite pure but as Yoram said still with something else and probably possibly because there needs to be something else in there for Loki to be okay yeah um, and now they had enough material to figure out how these guys live um, because to have some idea how they could eventually um, turn from RK into eukaryotes, we first have to understand like how do they function as an RK? What are the things that it can do? Um, and so they did uh, these very pure co-cultures in the end. Um, I did some uh, microscopy on them and could see that the cells are very small, approximately 300 to 750 nanometers. It's, it's very, very tiny. And uh, they make this like polymer, this substance around them, which becomes important later on. So they don't just hang around there as this caucus. They have like this slimy surrounding around them. Um, there was a word they used, uh, bleps? Bleps. <laughs> yeah. They put off bleps, which is also like kind of like blisters on their um, yeah. body. Yeah. Yeah. And they could show with uh, some, some experiments that they lived off the degradation of amino acids um, uh -huh. and peptides. And that they probably share, then um, f they did some gen uh, genomic analysis and they could see what enzymes they have. And their, um, their working model is that uh, the Loki guys, they work together with the other culture partners um, by sharing format and hydrogen that Loki makes from degrading mm -hmm. amino acids, handing that over. Um, and then their culture partner uh, can use that in their metabolism to create other nutrients um, that are then traded towards Loki. So together mm -hmm. they have the symbiosis and only together they can survive. Yeah, so as Yoram said, they did a few different experiments. They did some feeding experiments. And then they also looked at what genes were actually present in Loki and to see um, what was possible based on the genes that were there. And then, of course, they also used that to come back to the phylogenetic tree to look what the relationship of Loki is in comparison with the bacteria, but also with the eukaryotes to kind of try to work out where the RK and where these um, Asgard superphyla fit in as the missing link um, between yeah. the eukaryotes and the prokaryotes. Turns out they cluster quite nicely with the eukaryotes. <laughs> yeah. um, so this looked good. Um, I have something on the etymology as well. So they gave it a name. They yeah. called it Promethea Archaeum, which is coming from Prometheus. Um, so they see a Greek god. He was not a god. He was a man, um, right? Yeah. He's the one who um, gave people the ability to fire and the go to, to have fire. He stole fire from the gods. And I think he's the one who got punished by having an eagle eat his spleen or his liver his every liver. single day 
Yeah, yeah gross. Um, so anyway, it got the name Prometheus. So Prometheus Archaeum because of this origin of life. It has um, Archaea meaning ancient. Um, and then the species name is Sintofictum, which comes from the sin, which is together. And then Trephine, which means to nourish. And Ictus, which is, yeah, okay. So it just basically means that it gets nourishment by being in these kind of um, together like, relationships with other yeah. organisms. So it's feeding using friends. And based on this feeding with friends, they came up with a hypothesis how... Um, based on the find the previous findings and the findings in the study they came up with a storyline how from they could go from an archaea living together with a prokaryote with a bacterium how this could turn out to be a eukaryote in the end they live in these marine sediments um deep under the sea but the ocean is not always deep so there could be places where these sediments reach areas that are much higher uh, where there's where there's less water on top of that so you have more oxygen available because at one point uh, in the earth's history um, the atmosphere became um, oxygenated by uh, photosynthetically active microorganisms that started creating uh, like doing photosynthesis creating oxygen and suddenly this oxygen was in the atmosphere and that was a trouble for the metabolic processes of many other things that lived and so they needed to evolve to deal with the oxygen um, and so this, uh, the idea is that some bacteria were already able to to tolerate oxygen, while these archaea, they struggled. Um, and when they lived in these sediment areas that are closer to the top of the sea, um, so they get more oxygenated water or even maybe dry spots where then like really oxygen can enter into the, the sediments, they live together with a bacterium that takes care of the oxygen. Um, and... Then, um, I, I'm simplifying here, the paper has a very nice uh, <laughs> chart there um, that you should check out. I think it's also all open access. Um, this archaea would then engulf this aerobe microbe, that microbe that could deal with um, with oxygen. And it would not mm -hmm. put it immediately into its, its cell. It would use this, like, these, uh, what what did they call it, blebs? This, like no, the blebs were the kind of bubbles that, but then they formed into these kind of arm-like, like it's almost like a small octopus, isn't it? It's kind of got yeah, these, but these it little also uses tentacles. Then these these like extracellular matrix that they would uh, uh, put to to sort of create a, a structure where they're together, and then they just had to wrap sort of a membrane around it, and the membrane around their chromosomes, and then you have a eukaryote. Um, uh -huh. I mean, they still. So it's called. They call it the E-cubed model. So the first E is to entangle. So you're not putting it inside. You're kind of getting it tangled up in your arms. The second is to then engulf and then to endogenize. So to actually make yeah. it um, apart. And then they started is... to evolve together. And the metabolic pathways of both of them adjusted to each other and turned to, into an actual uh, mitochondrion. Because the mitochondrion today is not a bacterium still. It's a different thing. It's an organelle now. Um, but this is their idea, and it's um, based on like all of this like share sharing of electrons and substrates mm -hmm. and nutrients. Um, I, th I found this quite fascinating to think about this, like to have this working model for this very important questions, like how did such a complicated complex structure, like a eukaryotic cell, how did this come to be? And I quite like mm -hmm. the model, and I quite like that they have a, an idea for that. And I think this this model is not something that's like completely new for this paper. It's building on. I mean, this this yeah. idea has been discussed before. It's it's not super novel, but and also the authors are very careful to say, hey, this is one idea. We don't have the proof of this. Obviously, I mean, you're talking about something that happened 
how many billion years ago? Some billion years ago? Yeah, a long time. Uh, <laughs> I didn't write down the number. So, but they do use quite um, careful wording and kind of say, here's one of our suggestions of, of what could happen based on yeah. what has previously been suggested by other authors as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um, check out the paper. Uh, I want to mention that this paper has already made its way into the Wikipedia article on the Asgard. Oh, ah, cool. Um, Despite it being published like a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Sometimes Wikipedia yeah. is really fast on that. So it's called <laughs> The Isolation of an Archeon at the Prokaryote-Eukaryote Interface, published in Nature in tw early 2020. Um, first author is Hiroyuki Imachi. Um, I have no idea about it, like the share of work here because I imagine over this time there were many important people that just made sure that the bioreactor was still working and alive and the, the experiment was still going on. So, like, massive Yeah, and there's really, there's a lot of detail in the paper that yeah. we didn't go into and I'm imagining a hell of a, a lot of supplementary yeah. <laughs> figures and, and information, <laughs> data sets. Data in sub one, sub two, <laughs> supplemental four. Yeah, I mean, they did sequencing. It's, like, barely even mentioned there. They did a lot of stuff that's kind of, yeah. Eh. yeah. Um, yeah, and actually the, the first two authors here are the corresponding authors, so I imagine they're the ones who are kind of the long-term runners of the experiments. So yeah. that's that's not very common um, in our field, I guess. Yeah. My favorite plant. Yeah, so today I want to do a very quick one. Um, my favorite plant is something that I found while going through one of my favorite topics, which is looking at um, different crops and alternative food sources, because I think this is something that people are getting more and more interested in as we talk about not only feeding the growing population of the world, but also growing crops under different environments, which might not be suitable for like our standard wheat, rice, potatoes, um, corn, but also where growing those things might be damaging to the environment, so maybe it's better to have other crops. And I came across something which I'd never heard of before, which is called mongongo, um, or also manketi. So the tree is called the manketi tree, um, and the tree is also called the mongongo tree, but then it makes a nut that's usually called the mongongo nut, as far as I can tell. Um, it's Shinziophytum rautenenii, um, if any of you are following our terrible pronunciation of Latin words, um, and it belongs to the Euphorbaceae. So um, it's a big tree. It can get to 15 to 20 meters tall. It's kind of, yeah, I don't know what to say. It's tree-like. It makes wood. You can use um, the wood to make structures, so boats, um, things like that. So it has also um, function there. But the interesting thing is that it has this kind of fruit Um and the fruit has two parts. So it's actually got a kind of thinner layer, which is an edible flesh. Um, I saw one thing which said it was quite sweet and it's kind of likened to a date. So they said that it had some like kind of sweet flavor, um, kind of fine hairs on the outside and a little bit tough, but a little bit sweet, maybe starchy as well um, and pleasantly aromatic. Um uh, but not super sugary as compared to the fruit. So it's got this kind of outside fleshy bit and then it has a sort of harder shell and you can crack this shell open and inside you have a nut. Um, so the nut is also edible and it's quite nutritious mm. um, and it has quite a high oil content. So you can then also use the oils for other things as well. So 
Um, yeah, the fruits can be cooked. I'm not sure if they're edible raw. I think you normally um, soften them because it's quite a tough thing. And they said that it's quite a good... It was, it's been used traditionally by the San people in the area, so it's Botswana and Namibia, for many, many years. And in fact, there's archaeological evidence that shows that these communities have been eating this food source for actually centuries. Um, and yeah, the fruit can be eaten, but also because it has this nut-like um, structure, it's quite resilient. So it can be stored for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it says that even the nuts can be collected from like pre-digested, like kind of from elephant dung. And because the nuts are quite hard, you don't, you've lost the fruit, but you still have something which you could open and um, use or even eat, I think, inside. So it has quite a high oil content, I think 59, 57% fat, something like that, and a few other nutrients. So yeah, it's a simple one. I, there's not a lot of information online. There's a few different web pages, but it's just something that I saw come up that this is something I've never heard of, but it can be eaten. Yeah, raw, steamed, roasted, chopped to put in other things. The oils can be used um, as a food source, but also, you know, for skin or hair or something like this. So yeah. I'm just always curious about these these different crops, given how how um, few plant species we utilize to feed the majority to get the majority of our calories from yeah. at the moment. It's it's not varied at all, right? Diversity in the plants. Science. Um, today is my turn. I want to present uh, Deborah Charlesworth. Um, she's a British. Uh, plant researcher um, she's still alive she um, she's in her 70s now um, she was educated in Cambridge where she did her PhD and her postdoc and then she became a professor in Edinburgh in 1997 and I just found her by looking around today for um, like w women in STEM and looking like related articles and things and somehow I came across her and um, I also don't have too much about her personal details I just know like professionally she worked as a population geneticist um, looking especially in the evolution of uh, or in the questions of um, mating systems in plants and uh, sex inheritance um, so how plants avoid uh, or how plants reject their own pollen in order to um, to not self-fertilize uh, and uh, avoid uh, inbreeding um, and things related to that and uh, in this research she published in total over 300 um, papers uh, peer-reviewed papers with her name on it and um, yeah, she was uh, awarded a prize for molecular ecology uh, in t uh, 2011. Um, and although she's well into her retirement, as well, <laughs> what I read about her, she's still active. Um, she now works um, or has collaborators working with zebrafish. Um, there's an interesting interview with her on Vimeo that we'll link as well, where she uh, she and her husband were interviewed uh, talking about their research and so on. Um, I didn't watch the full interview, but it's quite charming to see them talk about their research and how she, com coming from a plant perspective, um, is now going into different model organisms, uh, namely the zebrafish, to further investigate how the um, sexual inheritance works there with, the th with things that she has found out in plants. Um, so yeah, that's Deborah Charlesworth uh, from a, a professor in Edinburgh. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, bias, bias. Bye. Bye.
Okay, and it's my turn with the Cognitive Bias Codex this week. I am spinning the wheel and coming up with something from the blue category, if you're following at home, which is that we don't have enough meaning, so we try to add extra meaning to things. Um, and it belongs to the subcategory, we imagine things and people we're familiar with or fond of as better. And the one I chose was the cheerleader effect. Mm -hmm. um, and this one is suspicious slash interesting because the phrase was coined by, wait for it, the character Barney Stinson in <laughs> How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> so in... Um, <laughs> It was for, in an episode that was first aired in like 2008, Barney kind of points out to the rest of the How I Met Your Mother crew that a group of women that kind of look attractive are actually not attractive women. It's just that the fact that they're in a group which makes them seem attractive. And this comes to the cheerleader effect, which is also known as the group attractiveness effect, <laughs> which is that we think individuals are more attractive when they're in a group. So... Yes, it was coined in How I Met Your Mother, but it was then backed up by research um, in 2013. They found that for both male and female faces, when in a group photo, they are more attractive than when in an individual photo. Um, and they, this is actually one of the rare cases in science where this was then again repeated in by another researching group a couple of years later and they could kind of support these claims. Mm -hmm. So always a nice thing to have that like independent confirmation by a different group in science. We very rarely get it, um, but came out nicely there. And they basically say there could be two possible mechanisms for why this happens. The first is that we have selective attention. So it's basically if there's a group of 30 people and a few of them are um, attractive, we tend to spend most of our time looking at the attractive people anyway. So we think that on average they're you know, around that attractiveness because we just ignore the less pretty ones. Um, and the other one is the Gestalt principle of similarity, um, which is basically uh, that the whole of something is greater than its sum of its part anyway. Yeah. So there's like kind of a value from them being as a group. Um, and the the researchers think that it's probably the first one, which <laughs> is that we're terrible people and we just look at pretty things. Um, yeah. Then there was another study in 2015, which said, this is not true. There's no group attractiveness. But then um, the research team said, oh, it might be a cultural difference because the other replication was performed in Japan. They said, hey, maybe this is not. Um, yeah happening yeah so it's not here. biology it's culture but i can't find proof that the first backup was actually true do you see the link to that one i mean it says a, a 2015 study by van Osh uh confirmed the results obtained by valka and wool oh yeah that's true yep okay take home messages i don't know we're we're terrible i think I, is no, the take I mean, home it's message like if you're dating hang out in groups and you'll look more attractive oh it definitely means so I personally find it very annoying if people have um, on their dating profile group photographs. This is partially because I'm quite face blind. So if there's like an individual photograph of themselves and then a group photograph, I'm like, but which one are you in the group? And then I'm like looking at it and looking at the other one. And this is a problem for me. This is not a problem for other people, I think. <laughs> I, um, I wonder now just the group size, uh, what in, uh, impact that has. Like, should it be three people? Should it be 10 people? Should it be, should I do like... Uh, this picture that we did at the institute where like all 300 people were, were on a on a picture and I should just use that as my dating app profile because then there's like 300 attra possibly attractive people and so like the entire well, you, group looks you do, great. <laughs> the problem is, right, that you do need to, so based on this um, 
what was it called? The selective attention. You should make sure that those people are more attractive than you because that means that I will find you more attractive yeah. because of the group. But then at the same time, you know, in that dating scenario, when you see a group and then like the one in the group who's like the least attractive <laughs> is the one who you're supposed to choose. It also has this kind of like thing where you're like, ah, yeah, okay. Like that's probably be just the, the average should be more attractive than you, but there should also be less attractive people than you. So you, mm. <laughs> you, I think just like one really hot person because that's anyway going to like selective attention will mean that people will spend most of their time on that like really hot <laughs> person. And then, yeah. yeah um, so you guys, you <sighs> wow. should try this out. If you're on dating apps, um, do uh, uh, some experiments, find your ugliest friend, tell them that they're your <laughs> ugliest friend, take a picture with them and see how that performs uh, in comparison to your uh, prettiest friend in a group picture on your dating profile. No, you. I, I mean, yeah, okay. You need many people, Yaron. Yeah. We've discussed this. Many then people. take a couple of people, tell them all that they're ugly as a control group. <laughs> no. Now I just feel disgusted and like kind of disappointed about society, dating, all of this. Like, <laughs> <sighs> Let's talk about something fun it's instead. Fu it's, it's funnier for you. I don't have to be pretty anymore. I, I already have offspring. <laughs> I can let myself go. You've only got one, though. I think you have to make at least two before you can let yourself go. <laughs> um, I have something which actually kind of links to that, if I may. Yeah. So talking about replicating studies. So there was a quite famous study that came out in Science Magazine in 2008, and you've probably heard of this. It's Oxley et al., and the title is Political Attitudes Vary with Physiological Traits. And the finding was basically that conservatives are more have more intense physiological responses to threats when they're shown this um, kind of images. So they basically are more scared or have these, um, yeah, more fear of these these stimuli that they were shown. So it could be, um, dun, 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 um, how did they do it? They measured physical sensitivity to sudden noise and threatening visual images. <laughs> um, yeah. And therefore, based on that, they, they said, okay, there's like a link between physiological response and basically the way you're going to vote or mm -hmm. this kind of um, your your policies. So this came out in, in 2008. And quite recently, there's been a rep reproduction of this study. So some scientists were trying to follow up on this research and do something new. But when they were doing some kind of test, they couldn't find the same difference in physiological response based on conservative and liberal mm -hmm. groups. So there's a new study that came out in Nature Human Behavior um, just a couple of days ago where they say that actually, no, according to them, the conservatives and liberals have similar physiological responses to threats. So they couldn't reproduce the original results. And then based on that, instead of carrying on with what they were planning to do, they asked the authors, I believe, of the original study for exactly which stimuli they use so they could perfectly replicate the replicate the experiment to try and really yeah. see that same effect that was shown before and they basically i think they used like four times more people so they ended up using um 202 people in total and it's called a direct replication mm -hmm. so this is pre-registered direct replication which means they're really trying to do everything exactly the same to show that the first you can rep reproduce the first results um and basically, the end is that there wasn't a difference. Um, and that's just come out now. So okay. this is something that which I remember seeing on the internet a while back, that there's these different kind of, yeah. Yeah, I remember that human, as well. Yeah, 
this case so it turns out no yeah. <laughs> okay yeah whenever you find a simple explanation for something as complex as a political opinion um it often turns out that it's not that easy well i mean it's this was this was i mean it was done scientifically it was saying so They had lower physical sensitivity to sudden noise and threatening visual images, and that correlated with a likelihood to support foreign age, liberal immigration policies. So they weren't like saying, hey, define yourself as liberal. They were kind of saying, yeah. would you then do this, this, and this? But I mean, the original group was only 46 people, which is maybe um, quite small for this kind of study. I'm not really familiar with human studies. Yeah. I, yeah. Like, yeah, with But, plants, if you would do the same thing to plants with 46 plants, you could argue that it's a small size <laughs> with humans i have yeah no i think you can't <laughs> like you can't yeah you can't cross but it, it's quite i mean, I mean it was, oh, the original yeah, publication was, was done in science so it probably went through like some some good peer review which just mean that they can't be wrong but it means like it's not something that somebody like pushed somewhere and then it was blown up it was like it was a respectable good science um as far as we can tell um and now we just see that things are probably more complicated i didn't want to say that the original study um messed up uh oh i have no idea maybe they did i, I have mean, no idea could be. <laughs> i don't know how to judge this at all i mean it, it, it does just happen with science that things are not reproducible i mean yeah. there's there's a chance that you yeah different environments different anything i mean yeah 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 um I have something that ties a little bit back to the thing that we said at the very beginning about your personal opinions. Um, I found an article on The Guardian that's uh, talked, uh, talking about naked intimidation, how universities silence academics on social media. And it's quite in an interesting read, and it reminds me of a certain institute that I used to work at, um, where uh, institutions, um, there's more and more universities now, especially in the US, but also elsewhere, that um, screen the profiles of their employees and um, talk to them and make them delete or rephrase things when it's not great. There was a case where um, there was um, a colleague uh, of on a, on a university that had uh, killed himself um, and cited in, in his um, ingest that workload was a factor. And somebody else uh, then later uh, wrote online, staff are marking hundreds of essays in an impossible short time. It is exhausting. Everyone is in crisis mode, stressed, moody, morose. Everyone feels like they're drowning um, some, that somebody wrote on Twitter and then a university wrote a message to all PhD students citing this tweet and says um, you must not say anything like this online um, please delete any comments that you make about work um, on social media and yeah. this is sort of the starting point and in the article they have a couple more examples and this conflict between like, universities, universities being this place of sort of free thought, free uh, voicing your opinions but at the same time also being sort of like an employer uh, somebody uh, something that has a brand that they want to preserve want to make sure that there's no bad speech about them online and that's how, what they try to police and the conflict that goes with that um and that happens in lots of different occasions yeah. so i remember i mean a, a couple of years ago yeah two years ago maybe australia had this plebiscite which was a a non-legally binding referendum about whether gay people should actually be allowed to marry in our country which was ridiculously late um given what you would hope for in australia um but i knew somebody who worked as a government employee and they were basically told hey as a government employee you're not allowed to have a political opinion on this yeah. like don't don't go voicing your opinions like you belong to us which 
is not a political opinion to start with. It's a human rights issue. So apart from the fact that I don't even think it's a political opinion, this is just very, very upsetting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting read and um, I can understand sort of why universities don't want to just accept that people talk shit about them online if, if they're their employee, uh, employees. At the same time, I don't think universities, universities are companies. Like if you are a company with a brand identity and you are competing on a market, you can't afford having employees talk shit about you and not re react to but that's this. Not talking, that's not talking shit, right? That's saying, is, that's like raising an issue, yeah. I would say. I mean, is that is that talking shit if you say I am overworked? In, like, in the eye of the universities, mm. they say that provokes anxiety and demoralization um, and they should rather uh, escalate but that internally say instead of voicing that publicly. This is the universities. It's like some university yeah. spokesperson said that like you should escalate this internally. But then I also can't say like pandas are probably going to die in the next 20 years because they're useless. Like that's also demoralizing for some people. Some people really like pandas. I don't know why they're useless, but some people like pandas and I could not tweet that without demoralizing people. Yeah. Like surely. Yeah. Like, I mean, what, what do you consider happy news? Like, Just kitten pictures. Some people don't like. Some people are allergic to cats. Yeah, so like, rather don't use social media at all. But also use social media because communication is important. But also don't use social media because all the pictures belong to us. And it's uh, <laughs> um, yeah, there's a clear yeah. Con uh, conflict of interest there. And it just reminded me, like uh, back when I was working in an institute, um, social media were very much frowned upon. Um, there was was absolutely, absolutely banned. Absolutely banned. Yeah. Very strict rules. No pictures. Nothing. So. Um, independent of the content um you were just not allowed to like put something about your work on social media well It, it's it's this weird thing because like you and i do discuss this also like there is this weird lack of boundary between your work life and your home life now which is yeah. not not very ideal like i mean we were just discussing today that both of us happen to have names which are quite unique so i'm not like I don't know, Natalie Smith, if you Google me, you will find me. There's only yeah. me. And even if you Google like me and a couple of keywords without knowing my full name, you'll very quickly find me. And this is something which means that I can't be anonymous online if I also want to have my identity, which I need to have online. If I want to apply for jobs, I need that you know who I am online. Yeah. But once I do that, yeah. I am now all of me becomes online, yeah. right? Like this is yeah, kind it's, of... It's, it's a tough one. Um, and... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I actually, and I don't it's, have, it's like, also a, something like yeah. it's also something I just think about this podcast a lot. So, um, like Yoram and I have discussed this in the past because Yoram is very like more of the podcast person. I was always more the writing person, and for me, it's something where I find like I know that I will say something that I will regret at some stage, and already there's like this small thing. So last weekend we were talking about Ives, um, Mexica, Mexi, I Mexia, forget her name fully. Mexia, exactly. Ives Mexia. Um, and her middle name was Enriqueta. And I immediately was like, oh, yeah, that's Henrietta. And it's like, well, why do I need to correct that to an Anglo name? I don't need to do that. So there's like these little things which you just say and you're like, mm, yeah. maybe that's like a bit shit that I said that. And the longer I'm talking, <laughs> the more shit I'm going to say. And as you change with time, as times change, but also as I change as a person, hopefully as I, I, I grow and change, um, there's going to be stuff now linked to my name which I'm like mm, that no longer reflects my opinion yeah. 
is that linked to my professional identity? Is that linked to my personal identity? I don't know. Like it's it's so complicated these days that everything is the like. The good thing about what we're doing here is that we are in, in full <laughs> control of all of our data. So if we do mess up, not at all. We're not at all in no, control. Like it's all on service that I control. Like I can take everything down. And but people can download that. Yeah. I mean, people can have copies that, of that's that. True. So like, they could have copies, but it's rare that people like archive the podcast that they listen to. But I also don't think that's the answer. I mean, if if I say something which I realized in five years time was racist or bigoted or there's something which is like hey I shouldn't have said that I, I stuffed up like me trying to like cleanse the records of having said that is also not the appropriate thing to do like we we as a society have to say hey yeah. we we fucked up we screwed up this was wrong and at the time I didn't realize but I, don't know. I, I think what I would do I, it's a little bit off topic now but the, you would s scrub no, everything I, I, I would scrub it but I would also put up a new thing mentioning the old stuff saying like in a thing that I mm. deleted because I don't want it spread I don't want to take it, it uh, taken further out of context um, I oh, said some bad you... things. This is why it was bad. This is why I apologize. This is why I would change it and not repeat it. But you don't leave it online so that people can just like listen to it again or read it again. But or everything it. is available now. And you do you know the Barbara Streisand effect? The Barbara Streisand effect is that she tried to sue somebody because they put the house plan of her house online or the location yep. of her house, something very personal online. But nobody knew that it was online. It was online, but it had like five hits. And once she started this court case, court case, which, yeah, fair enough. She doesn't want people knowing where she lives and what her house looks like. That's when people suddenly started spreading it. Like, True. oh, what's she trying to hide? And and that's the Barbara Streisand effect that the second you try to remove something, people become more interested in it. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. we've gone very <laughs> off topic again. <laughs> Guys, if we do say something and you're like, you know what, that was a bit of a dick thing to say, please let us know. I mean, we want to self-correct. We want to have, like, yeah. be better people. We want to be not dicks, yeah. basically, is our aim in life. And I would really much like not to need to delete anything from, from the past for messing up. Oh, my goodness. So, I, I like, it's not the first intention that I have, but, yeah. <laughs> do you have something else fun? Like, I have an, a very short thing. Oh, okay. So I was just reading around about random evolution stuff and I found a review in the Journal of Experimental Biology um, by Gallant and O'Connell that came out, yeah, basically, I guess a couple of days ago. It was published on the 7th of Feb and it's called Studying Convergent Evolution to Relate Genotype to Behavioral Phenotype. Um, and it's a review on this topic. What I really, really respect of this um, review is that it's an eight-page review out of those eight pages, about three of the pages of the review are kind of figures, so two to three pages of figures, and they dedicate an entire page to talking about science communication. Yeah. So at the bottom of the review, and it's somehow in there, and it's quite interesting, like you read the abstract, and like, okay, we're talking about this evolution, and we're relating genotype and behavioral phenotype, and we use an example of, um, I think they have poison um, arrow frogs, and also a fish species, electric fish, and then they have this one page talking about how... Um, you can use charismatic animals, in, in their case animals, a bit easier than plants, I would argue, um, to draw in the public and the importance of drawing in the public if you want your science to be heard and if you want um, the world as a general to care about your science and therefore give you money, like to fund your science. Um, and they talk about the example of how using these electric eels is really interesting because everybody has a, a natural connection to electricity because we use it. And then also these poison arrow frogs are quite interesting because they have these like beautiful colors and, and bright features and stuff. But I, <laughs> I mean, absolutely no disrespect. I mean, the utmost of respect. I am so impressed that they shoehorned this entire page of... Yeah. 
because it's so important and they got it into a review where I've not seen that kind of thing before. It's called Fantastic Beasts and How to Use Them for Public Engagement. <laughs> so it's the last section of this otherwise quite like on-topic scientific, um, yeah. like for a scientific audience. And then it's like, hey, you know, scientists, while you're reading this, this is really important. Yeah, like, yeah it's really cool. Utmost respect to Jason R. Gallant and Lauren A. O'Connell. You are amazing. <laughs> um, I have something from a category of no shit, Sherlock. Um, it's a study that shows that golden rice is safe. Um, so now it's also in, in print. Golden rice, the thing okay. that has been safe forever, is safe. <laughs> still safe. Still safe. Um, is it called golden rice is safe or golden rice is still uh, safe? I think this is just called golden study shows that golden rice is safe. And uh, my other thing that I wanted to uh, spend more time talking about is an article that I read on the BBC.com website um, about Robert Fortune. Have you heard about Robert Fortune? No. Um, he invented glass cases to transport plants around the world um, in the 1830s. Um, and this story is sort of a story about how he's this great adventurer um, who doesn't take advice. Like they, he went on an exp exp uh, expedition in China, sent out somebody um, to go deep into the, the forest to collect specimen. Um, and then this guy came back and he only been like very close to the coast because he said, it's dangerous to go inland. And then he got the, this Robert Fortune is like, no way, it's not dangerous. And then he goes in there and then he gets like robbed and all his stuff stolen. And so it, it was in fact dangerous. So this was the kind of guy um who then had to deal with the problem of collecting these specimen and then bringing them back to england where he was from um to further study them and um he just invented the, the glass cage for uh for transport and that was a huge invention for not only for research but especially for trade and economy because then britain being the colonial power that they were um then used that to when the chinese said like you if you want to have our tea you have to pay more money for it they just stole tea plants put them in glass cages on boats shipped them to india and started tea colonies there something they couldn't have done like before one out of 20 plants would survive um with the glass uh -huh. cages 19 of, out of 20 would survive so they could much wow. more like use their colonies, bring plants around the globe. The article, in my opinion, is a little bit too much on the side of, yay, look what we could do, because it's all based on like abusing their colonies by bringing mm. plants around the world to uh, like um, extend their, their uh, economic power by having their own places where they could grow plants that usually were just local at a specific region. Um, but it was quite interesting that because with that he also brought sort of the idea of greenhouses. Um, so they started in Kew in in London. They they had this big um, botanical garden where they then started putting up greenhouses to where the plants could survive. Wait, greenhouses weren't a thing before this at I, all. From the article, it it sounded like it. I actually didn't research it, but it sounded okay. like this sparked this idea that putting something in a glass cage. Um, makes it thrive more it even extended to the mm -hmm. idea that in london where you had like air pollution and diseases and stuff um, that people could live in glass cages where they would have like the light and uh, the nice air inside but would be like not breathing the horrible polluted air and so on um, and all of that from this like guy who yeah um he was mostly going around stealing plants and we now glorify it as this like great researcher who brought back specimen, but he just like went to other countries and took what they had uh, um, and invented a, a way I to mean, make it better. I mean, this is a discussion better. we've had before, yeah. right? 
Uh, but it was quite an interesting read on the bbc.com um, about how, what, what is the title? We also link it to Clever Glass Box That Reshaped the World. Cool. Um, I have a very quick one that you might have heard of before, and then I have a cat fact. Have you got anything else you want to go I through? I have a few things. I'm, I'm going to select something that I want to do talk next about. Um, uh, let me do my quick one, which is something that came out in Nature. I'm sorry, I'm so nature heavy at the moment. I have attempted to rectify that by getting myself also the science um, <laughs> uh, newsletter. Let's be honest, science is not just, just not as good as nature. I think we can say oh that on the program that nature is Yara. the best thing. Period. <laughs> um and yeah um no but it was it was again something that came in the briefings because i've been a bit busy this week and haven't been um looking at many things independently but it's it's called collab tree and it's basically that somebody has set up a freelance research platform Mm -hmm. so it says the company bringing scientists into the gig economy and it's basically the idea of trying to match scientists with kind of companies which might need a little bit of science expertise but not enough to employ a full-time scientist. So they might be like, one example they use is people like developing some, I don't know, cosmetics or something and they're like, oh, this is not right. How do I change the pH or something like this? And they get a scientist. And I can hear Yoram already making angry noises in the background because Yoram is very suspicious of a gig economy. But um, they they do have, I mean, it's it's clearly an article which is a discussion um, with Ashmita Das, who is the the founder um, in 2015, she she started the company, um, and she's talking about how they do try to make it uh, that it's not a race to the bottom, that it doesn't have that kind of Uber mentality where you get lower and lower prices and you basically screw over the people who are working for you. They're trying to make that the freelancers set their own prices. Um, don't know how that works in a free market environment, but they, they do at least address the problem and I'm not really sure how it will yeah. come about, yeah. but go check so that out. Article, about um, article in collab, article in collab, um, on collab tree in nature, um, career question and answers. We'll post that again. Okay. Yeah. I'm, uh, uh, we have a whole episode, uh, title. Don't start, get me started in the gig economy. So do we, <laughs> Oh dear. um, so I won't, I uh, won't talk about this now. I'll instead talk about sort of the opposite end of, of this. Um, the, the low tech magazine, um, is a magazine that deals with low tech and they have a very cool project. Um, that's a server for their website that's run on solar power. And uh, it has a battery, but when the sun goes out and the battery is empty, the server goes offline. Um, and so they they have this like minimalist, like this Raspberry Pi microcomputer where the entire thing is hosted on. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the whole website is it's like not uh, loaded with all of this like modern technology, like PHP and dynamically loaded uh, assets and whatever, like lots of things that creates traffic. It's like a very slim website. Like uh, the page load is very fast. Um, uh, they do something to the images so that the images take up less space. So the idea is to have like the most uh, slimmed down version of a web server that you can have that has the, the, the lowest econ- um, environmental impact while still being mm-hmm. useful, while still delivering a service. So they publish their okay. magazine on there. Um, uh, and What's this called? What's magazine. the link? 
and now they ran for a little bit over a year they ran this server now on uh, on solar power and it's quite fun when you go to the website wow, it's cool. um, like half is blue and half is orange and it's so it this gives you the charging state of the battery at the time you access the website so this goes down um, during the night and then in the morning then it, it uh, charges again the thing is located on a balcony of one of the editors of this magazine <laughs> in Spain uh, wow. in, in Barcelona and um, yeah they talk like it's a very long article that uh, that I'm going to link where they sort of summarize what their learnings were like how did how well did it work what was the uptime um, so they had um, a 95% um, uptime which is for any data center terrible because that means they were offline for almost 400 hours in total mostly during the night uh -huh. um, but for something that pretty much it is completely off grid apart from the network connection to the internet but um, power wise completely off grid and and self-supporting um quite impressive and quite cool and they talk about like different solar panel sizes battery sizes what is the energy cost to do, to make these solar panels and batteries how does that factor in how could you scale this or could you, uh, and so on um and it's just like a very interesting read if you are interested in sustainability and the internet essentially like how can we have a more sustainable internet um what are the measures that we have to take what are the things um that take up energy like they have a thing where um they had a big reduction of their uptime when some algorithm was running haywire and was requesting the rss feed of the website every few minutes um and that would just use so much more power that the server would go offline much earlier than when they fixed the bug and suddenly the, the time increased a lot um so these small things wow. where when the thing is plugged into power we don't really care about this but it's still energy that's used it's still things like if we have inefficient software it still like uses power and requires more power than than is necessary strictly so i quite like reading that I, it's it's quite technical but i just like the whole concept of this website of this this server i mean i i recommend just going and checking out the website to have a look at it as well because it's got it's quite hipster isn't yeah. it it's got this kind of beautiful um minimalistic kind of style but it's it's really cool looking yeah it's, it's yeah great. and they have lo other articles as well they're quite interesting um uh, all about low tech and sustainability and low carbon footprint and so on um, and all hosted on a server that's powered by the sun um, so it's pretty much a plant <laughs> um, sure yeah so you only have a cat fact left right I, think I just so, have yeah. um, one more thing that I want to mention another Guardian article about the eco gender gap um, oh I yeah, saw why that saving the planet seems to be women's work uh, I saw that. <laughs> and I found it an interesting read. I don't really know what I, I, I take away from this, but the idea is that um, when it comes to more sustainable products that that uh they are mostly bought by women especially in the, the or you find them often in like the cosmetics uh, section and um they are even if they are gender neutral in in general it's women that are more likely to buy those than than men and this raises the question of why is that the case why do is there like a thing with women that they like this better is it a marketing thing um and um yeah, it's an interesting read with a couple of examples. Um, it shows, uh, it, it talks about also um, 
uh, yeah, there's like one company that does the same thing for men, and they say, yeah, we never saw, um, uh, we don't, we have no idea why men would not be interested in this, but all the numbers seem to show that men care less about the the environment, and it ties into this idea that women are more often in charge of doing the shopping. So when they do the shopping, then they're also um, trying then uh, to buy more eco-friendly stuff. Um, and they one thing that they go into is the idea that women are often not in positions of power in the, in society. Mm-hmm. So the little power that they have is the power of consumption. So they sort of like subconsciously use that as a proxy. So they can't, they don't sit in the management positions where they can actually make big changes. Um, uh, they instead use what they can do by like purchasing like uh, more eco-friendly products. Yeah. I think, I think I definitely recommend reading this article because it's, it's it's even more than that. I mean, it's a discussion. So, like, yeah, because because of the current position of women, which is still mostly doing the the household items, women women take care of this. That creates a feedback loop where now all these companies are all targeting women. But there's also like a ma- um, a macho element of it, where, for example, not eating meat is seen as something which is soft. It's seen as like, yep. oh, you know, you're a man. Why don't you eat meat? Or like they said, carrying a canvas bag, having like a a reusable bag to go to the shopping. That's like seen as girly. It's seen as feminine to do these kind of things. And all of this, and then women are seen as more nurturing. So it's our job to like take care of the environment. So there's all of these different things which happen historically and which are kind of now stuck in these loops which are, are building onto this um construction of yeah environmentalism as a women thing and like on the same theme i also learned a kind of word again i was looking for random articles and petromasculinity is this this idea of like the kind of link between yeah masculinity which is linking to this kind of current consumption method we have that's very linked to fossil fuels and how there's this identity of men um which comes from like like cars and like like the that whole industry of consumption um and there's a lot of stuff about like gender and the relationship to like the the current like capitalist society there's a lot of this stuff but like read the guardian article i really do recommend it um it's there's it, it really addresses a lot of different issues in quite a short readable article that kind of comes at this idea from several different angles and yeah if you haven't thought of these angles before it's definitely worthwhile having a look at it yeah so um i think now we can move on to the cat fact and i'll just keep my other fun things for next week then i have less work to do for next week (laughs) (laughs) cat fact (laughs) such a terrible jingle i love it uh this <laughs> this is actually an article that came out in biological conservation um it came out on the 10th of february this year so just again just a couple of days ago and i really have to thank people at work who sent this round um i was pretty amused <laughs> um the title is and now i've just lost the tab where there are girls there are cats um so basically the reason it's in this journal in the first place is that cats are a huge problem so cats living outdoors free-ranging have huge threats on biodiversity i'm sure i've talked about this in the past in the context of australia and how feral cats can basically just destroy entire ecosystems of birds and small mammals but in many different places in the world cats they like to eat things they like to kill things 
keeping them outdoors is really not ideal. And this is just a study looking at the density of these free-ranging cats at different university locations within a province of China. So they looked at 30 different universities and yeah, basically they saw that there was a correlation between <laughs> women and cats. <laughs> yeah. And then they did like some questionnaires and they found that so there was like a linear relationship between the number of female students and the number of cats. And then they did a questionnaire and they basically confirmed that like the females care about the cats. So probably the females were <laughs> more likely to be feeding the cats and keeping them alive. And I'm um, looking at the abstract right yeah. now um, and the study leaves an interesting co-evolution story between human and humans and cats and suggests that human sex may be an important factor to consider in cat population management and wildlife conservation. They mean gender. That's I mean sex yeah, in that yeah, way, but yeah, it is bi biologically it is sex, but it was very confusing. That, that the cats can distinguish uh, men from women apart, um, and I don't know if that's the point. I think the women are just feeding the yeah. the cats, right? Like yeah, I mean, they say, I mean, to <laughs> me, the take a socialization test on twenty seven free ranging cats, and they didn't do any socialization tests on the humans. So. <laughs> uh, no, they they just did the, the surveys according to the abstract. It's the only thing I read. But uh, the co-evolution part made me think of our paper of the week that maybe if we just start embracing the cats and then building a membrane around them, we become a new organism. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's the cat-based organelle. <laughs> I mean, my take-home <laughs> message is like, I am a girl. I don't know if I call myself a girl. I would say I'm a woman, but I am a woman. Girly girl. Where the fuck are my cats? Like... <laughs> Where are my cats? You either have to move to China or to a university uh, or to just a place where there's mm. free-ranging cats. I mean, it did say a linear relationship. It didn't say like what the, you know, like Y equals MX plus C, what the M value is. So how many cats per female was not in the abstract. Yeah. I, I can't click on the thing because I don't have access. Yeah. But like maybe I have 0.1 cat and I'm just not aware of it, you know? <laughs> maybe I need to like find some more girls so I can get me a cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so that, that I think that's it for today. Um, yeah, I think so too. <laughs> uh, follow us on all of the social media. On Instagram and Facebook, you can talk to me. It's at Plants and Pipettes. On Twitter, you find me at Plants Pipettes. We also have a blog which we update twice weekly, usually on Mondays and Wednesdays. We talk about new findings, usually new journals that have published in the field of plant molecular biology. Um, and also some basic kind of knowledge articles and stuff. Anyway, www.plantsandpipettes.com. Go check you that can, out. You uh, rate us on iTunes. That would help us a lot. And give, give us, us ratings. ratings. Give us comments. You can comment under this episode or you can uh, reach out to us on the social media. Whatever. If we say something that's wrong, which I don't think will happen, but... If, if, if. <laughs> no, we're happy to be corrected. We're happy to hear any of your concerns, your comments, maybe suggestions of things you want to hear yeah, about. Um, send us a message or just comment under the episode um, so that maybe also other people could see the comment and react and we have a whole thing. Um, and uh, what else is there? The opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And I think we said all the things we need to say in the end, don't we? Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.